Hey, everybody. Welcome to another fun-filled episode where we interview amazing people that have done incredible things with their lives by using their mind, by developing habits, by understanding things that aren't in that box that we all tend to play with. They're outside the box. So today I have Mr. Moral Porcini. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. <laughs> it's so good to have you. And he is currently the chief design officer at PepsiCo. First ever chief design officer, I may add. And before that, he was the first ever chief design officer at 3M. So clearly these big, huge bazillion dollar companies are seeing something in him that he's that he's got that other people don't have. And come to think about it, he wrote a book and it's called The Human Side of Innovation, The Power of People in Love with People, focusing on the innovation, design and leadership. Welcome, Moral. I can't wait to dive in. Let's get into it. I can't wait either. Let's do it. <laughs> so, I mean, why don't you just kind of give us the 10,000 foot view of your philosophy and kind of the origin of where this came from and how this is helping you to just crush it in life and in business? Well, if you work for big corporations very quickly, you come to realize that something that is very important for this company when you drive businesses, capabilities, or any kind of activity in the company is the way you do it. They call it processes, ways of working, frameworks. And so, so much time is invested in these companies and, uh, and money and resources of any kind uh, to define those processes and those tools. And the reason is pretty obvious because processes and tools are tangible, are manageable, are controllable. And this is how they try to drive business growth, innovation, branding inside the organizations. When you do that, you know, when I joined 3M, for instance, more than 20 years ago, I started to work with these processes and these tools and they introduced new ones coming from the design world, the world of design thinking, divergent thinking, convergent thinking, the double diamond of uh, design thinking, so many different kinds of methodologies complementary to what the company was already doing. At a certain point, you know, I started to run a series of projects with these tools and with these processes. And then I, I realized that some projects were doing very well and some others were not, were failing, either during development or eventually market. So, you know, back then I was thinking, okay, what do I need to change in the way of working, in the processes, in the organization, in the tools to get it right, to increase the number of successes in our pipeline? And I started to tweak things until at a certain point, really analyzing at the beginning dozens of projects, then hundreds of different projects, I realized that there was something else that was making the difference all the time. And when I say it now, it sounds so obvious, but back then it was not. And even today, anyway, in corporations, people rarely talk about these kind of things when you talk about the success or failure of these projects. What I'm talking about is the people that were assigned to those projects. Depending on the people assigned in my design capability, in marketing, in R&D, in the agencies we were working with, depending on the way these people were thinking, behaving, interacting with each other, uh, the projects could go in a direction or in a completely different opposite direction. And yet, every time something didn't work out, when you are doing the post-mortem and you are analyzing what was not working, 
all the conversations were always about the processes and tools. When you were trying to change something in these companies and you would go to the big strategy firms or design firms, innovation firms of the world, every time they were coming in and selling you their processes, their tools. So again, back then I realized that the key difference was driven by these people. So I decided to try to figure out what, what, what were those behaviors, those soft skills, those ways of thinking and acting that were making the difference. And so without reading books or anything, I just started to write down a list of things that were really making the difference. Then over the years, I'm talking about 20 years ago, over the years, I did read books. I did talk with experts in a variety of different fields of human science and behavioral science. But mostly, mostly, I validated, I put under you know pressure the list of soft skills that I, I, I define. I evolved the list, I tweak it, I change a few, I add a few others. And long story short, I came up with this list of 24 different kinds of skills uh, that define those extraordinary innovators. I call them the unicorns. They are people in love with people, as the subtitle of the book uh, states. Uh, and essentially, these characteristics help me hiring the right people, coaching the people within the organization to behave in a certain way, but mostly they are also a sort of compass for myself to understand how to behave and mostly how to better myself all the time. Because this is the uh, fundamental truth. Life is a never-ending journey to grow and learn and, and better yourself. In the book I talk, I, I, I make this analogy or metaphor, if you want, with the work of a sculpture, an artist in general. Uh, we are born raw material, we're like marble. And then what we do over life is we sizzle the marble away like Michelangelo used to do with his famous non finiti, his famous sculpture that is left unfinished. So essentially his theory was that the sculpture is already inside the stone. You know, when we're born, we are raw material, but there is already a glimpse of what we're going to be inside ourselves already when we are kids. I mean, I have a one-year-old little girl. You can see that she has her own character. There is something there, but it's raw material. And it's up to us before anything else. You know, yes, there is families, there is education, but it's up to us to decide that we're going to sizzle ourselves to take out what we are supposed to be, to leverage our full potential. But life is a continuous work of seasoning, seasoning, and we'll never finish this culture. Like Michelangelo at the end of his life, this, you know, his famous culture at the end of the life where the non-finiti, the non-finish. With the sculpture, he was telling the world exactly this theory, that the, the, the soul of the, of the art was already inside the material. That's us. We never finish ourselves because the, the, when we are finished, the ideal situation, the unicorn, doesn't exist. Platone would say, Plato would say, the unicorn live in the world of ideas, in an imaginary world. And all our life, we invest our time and resources and mind in these 24 different skills to grow, trying to become perfect, ideal, knowing that we'll never get there. But that's the beauty of life, that you keep learning and growing. It would be so boring if we're all perfect, right? <laughs> I love it. You know, it's funny. So that's so cool. Every time I have a guest, that is like super insightful, like yourself, that can see certain things that a lot of people can't see. And it sounds like, right, you identified sort of like a pain point. And you're like, all right, well, I want to figure this out, which is kind of how I went about things too. Like I struggled 
for me, it was more, my pain point was my life and I was in trouble when I was a teen and I was like, I need to turn this around or it's not going to end well. But for whatever reason, right. You, it's like, and for me, I was like, I'm on this journey. I got to figure out the answer. Like what makes people happy? Like what motivates them? What, you know, you, you just told a similar story of kind of how you came to that same point of like, I want to figure this out. And you had this epiphany and there's these universal principles in life that I, I talk about that I get so excited when I hear somebody else telling it in a different way that resonates with me because I know it's going to resonate with somebody else because these are these principles in life that are essentially, they've been around since the beginning of time. They're going to be around until the end. You can hang your hat on them. If you ignore them, you are going to be in trouble. If you understand and utilize them and insert them into your life, into your business, you're going to do well. And the way that I look at it is exactly this non-fiend is we never finish is I call it ABG. It's the other side of it, which is ABG is the secret to happiness, which is always be growing. And the moment we stop growing is the moment that we stop being happy. The moment we stop living, like, you know, there's that old saying, you know, if you stop moving, you die. And that's true in a lot of different ways. Now, you know, right? it, so I like it, how yeah. you said it there. You, you said a few things that immediately made me think about additional discoveries I had in life. First of all, you mentioned a couple of times a keyword for me. For me, it's the most important keyword in life and is happiness. Happiness. We should have governments, companies and communities of any kind all focus on creating happiness for the society because this is what we aim to as human beings. As human beings, we have two things that we do all the time, you know, all our life. The first one is very biological, is our instinct. And it's essentially is the instinct of reproducing ourselves, reproducing the species. Like animals, this, you, you need to survive, you need to be safe, the base of the Maslow pyramid. At the end of the day, because nature wants you to reproduce yourself. So this is that instinct that we have, you know, literally at the base of the Maslow pyramid. Now, if you go above and beyond that, you know, that essentially this is the base of us as animals in the universe. The other thing that drive us continuously is this search for happiness, whatever, you know, however you want to define it. The problem that we have in this society today, though, is that most people, I mean, many people, not most people, many people are confusing happiness with material success, being financial wealth or fame. And so, especially in the younger generations, so many times I hear people telling me, well, how can I get to your position or to, you know, the, the, essentially the success that, they, that you had, but they again talk about wealth, money, and recognition, fame, whatever you want to call it. And what I usually tell them, especially when I talk to classes of students and everything, I tell them, look, if this is your goal in life, a good 90% of you, at least, will fail. The good news is also that the 10% that make it, they become rich and famous, they will realize once they're rich and famous that if they didn't work on other things that are really important in life, they will be totally unhappy. Or that rich, uh, the wealth and the fame won't be, won't help them in any form or way. Actually, may even amplify certain problems that they may have inside themselves. And there are other things that we need to do now. I got to this realization. Somehow, I need to thank my parents. I always talk about them because somehow that's the education that they gave me. You know, this 
looking for happiness without even talking about happiness, without articulating in this way. But that's the education I had. But then there is life. You get away from your parents. You have your own path and everything. And, and so somehow I had this inside me, but I, I started to explore and experiment and go in different directions. And I had a crisis like you, but you know, in my case, it happened later in life. I, I went through a very painful divorce around 2015, 2016. And that, you know, in crisis is when real change. And by the way, in crisis in companies where real innovation happens, or, you know, it, this is, it's the same kind of root cause. You're forced to change because you arrive to an ending point and either you change or you disappear, essentially. And so even in my case, I was, I really reach really bottom, rock bottom. And that forced me to try to understand what was important in life. And I realized certain things that were important, you know, for instance, friends and family that were close to me, but it's not just about them, but it's what they were doing for me is love, is care, is kindness. I cut off all people that didn't have this kind of characteristics in those years. And I did it in, intuitively, you know, naturally. I needed to surround myself with certain kind of people. Those kind of people will come, the others will disappear. So the ones that disappear were not part of my life, even when I got over the crisis. Now, because I always like to think about things and, and try to find paths and, 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 and common points and traits, when I went through that crisis, then again, I tried to understand what really helped me in that moment. And then I went back to those skills of the innovators, of the entrepreneurs that I drove many years before. And then I realized that there were many common points. And I realized that actually there were certain traits that are totally unexpected in corporations that nobody ever talks about, like kindness, for instance, you know, as an example, curiosity, a variety of different characteristics, empathy, but empathy applied to other people, not to design thinking innovation. I'm talking about real empathy that you have with your colleagues, with people around, around yourself. So I realized there were common points that actually over the years helped me so much being successful. And it helped me so much back then. And then when I got over the crisis, being also happy, the magic formula, they were helping me succeed in the business environment, but they were also helping me being happy in life. And so at the end of the book, actually, I wrap everything up by talking about what are the three steps to be happy. So I, it's a business book, it's a book about innovation, but the reality is a book about life. The start with my life, ends with my life. And for three-fourths of the book talks about many examples coming from life that have nothing to do with 3M or with PepsiCo or with these corporations, but are really useful in these corporations as well. I mean, just to mention one, because I keep talking about these skills that I didn't mention once yet. I mean, I briefly refer to it, but kindness is one of them. Curiosity, I mentioned earlier, is another one. Optimism is another one. Three characteristics that you rarely talk about in these companies of any in companies of any kind. And that for me really made the difference. Starting with kindness, the least expected. You know, I've been always somehow this kind of kind person. But once again, I need to thank my parents. My parents gave me, you know, when I was a kid, there were two mantras in the house, two ideas that were pillars of our education. One was this idea of you need to be a nice person. 
in that interpretation was you need to be a good Catholic boy. Uh, they were going to church all the time and everything, but they were what they were talking about transcend completely any form of religion. They were talking about being good human beings to others. So for me, that was the most normal thing in the world. I thought that everybody was like this. The second thing they were always talking about was culture. But culture meant learning things and curiosity for learning things. And the more you learn, the more rich you are inside. And that's the most important thing that count in life. That's, for them, money, wealth, success were actually a danger. When I started to, uh, you know, to make some money at the beginning working in corporations, I come from a very humble family. When I started to make some money, I remember my mom being worried that I would lose my way. Just to give you an idea of the kind of education. So again, kindness has been always part of something that I thought would, would be was important in life. But then I started to see that many people were not kind and they were not kind in society, they were not kind at work, but I was just doing it because it was my nature. And so later on, when I saw how, you know, what drove part of the success that I had in these companies is that it was nice to people and I was building bridges. I was not creating silos. I was feeling for them when, you know, I, 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 I wanted to build real connections with these people. And so I realized that actually kindness is an amazing driver, not just of success in a project or in building a capability or in a business, but actually is a driver of productivity, is a driver of efficiency. This is what I try to do in these companies all the time, connecting, you know, the more emotional kind of qualities with something that the companies care about, that is money, is productivity, is efficiency. You know, imagine if you're surrounded by people that are not kind to you, what is the probability that you're going to trust them? You're going to build bonds with them and synergies with them. You will go to the office from nine to five and as soon as possible, you will disappear. But if you're, if you're, if you're surrounded by people that are kind to you, that interact with you, that you really trust, then first of all, you want to spend more time with them. You're going to build bonds with them, connections that help you when the week after, the month after, or the year after, you're going to face a problem. It could be a problem in a project. We have problems all the time in projects, you know, difficulties in an activity. It could be even a personal problem, you know, that crisis, personal crisis that you bring to work anyway, because we are human beings. In the moment, if you are surrounded by kind people, they will be there to help you, to solve problems together, to build that kind of synergies. And these drive efficiency. The opposite situation, imagine a company of 300,000 people like PepsiCo, and you have these 300,000 people not working together in the proper way, not being kind to each other, not trusting each other. Imagine the amount of lack of productivity that these kind of behaviors can generate in a company this size that is totally invisible. Toxic, yeah. So this is one example, but there are many others. Just another one quickly. If you have a boss that is a jerk, that is not a nice person, is not kind, is not, doesn't have the right empathy, what are the probabilities that you're going to help this person if this person has a blind spot, is making a mistake? You know, probably you're not going to be there, you know, to help. And even if you are, because you are extremely kind, what are the probabilities that this person wants to be helped by others around them? And so this is another example of lack of efficiency, productivity, synergies that you build in these teams when you have the wrong people. And yet, you see many companies, very successful people in very prominent positions, they are, they are the opposite of being kind.
And these kind of people are generating a level of inefficiency and lack of productivity in these companies that is totally invisible. The companies are not aware of it. And by the way, this is poison because this is tr this trickle down in the rest of the organization and, and cascade that kind of attitude and behavior and amplify it even further. So this is one example of many of the characteristics I talk about in the book that are usually not celebrated in companies. In this specific case, actually, they tell you the opposite. You need to be a little bit of a shark. You need to be tough. You need to compete to extract, you know, the best ideas out of a team. And the reality is that this kind of approach is totally obsolete in the society we live in today. In 20 years ago, 30 years ago, eventually it could have made sense. Uh, I don't think it was justifiable anyway, but these companies were rich. They were wealthy. They had huge barriers to entry. It was so difficult to compete with them. But in this world, global, tech-driven, digital, where essentially these big companies find themselves competing with entrepreneurs and startups that arrive to market, leverage digital channels to sell stuff and promote their products and ideas. In this kind of world that is hyper-competitive, where, competitive, where efficiency and productivity are keywords, kindness is indispensable today more than ever, not just because it's something that we should all have no matter what, but also because it drives financial value for your company. I love it. As I'm listening to this, you know, I, we've talked briefly. I think you understand that uh, we, we mentioned about the universal principles and to me, everything revolves around your habits, both personally, professionally. And kind of what I'm hearing you say, correct me if I'm wrong, is your habits that you have as a human being are going to drive you not only personally, but professionally. And we live in a society where it used to be, and I agree, like our parents' generation for sure, uh, even when I was younger, it was like, you need to be a, a hard ass. You need to, you know, really, you're not here to make friends. You know, Gordon Gecko, greed is good these types of things, and it kind of became popularized and sort of the default. But really, it's an extremely toxic quality to have, especially, you know, if you're in a leadership position, that if you treat people poorly, you know, people aren't going to be motivated. They're not going to be happy. They're not going to want to stay there. They're not going to want to do a good job. I mean, it, you mentioned at the beginning of this contest, or this, this podcast, it's all common sense, but yet, it's right in front of us. Again, these are universal principles. Do unto others, right? But how many how many times do we ignore these things in our lives? And how many people and how many corporations just completely get off track, right? And I love that you're in that huge world and part of this humongous company. My wife used to work for PepsiCo, actually. Company that is responsible for so many lives and, and families. And, you know, those families, you mentioned you had good parents. They're going to then pass on, you know, if they learn some good company culture and have good, uh, I call them your, your influencers, right? Like you had good influencers growing up, and, uh, growing up and they instilled some really great principles in you, which you're now teaching other people. But a lot of people didn't have that, but you can get them from other places. And one of the best places to get is from your workplace. If, if it's a good culture and you can get these types of things, then you then pass it down to your kids and then they spread it. Right. And so it becomes more of like a, you know, it spreads that way. And so, yeah, I love that. That's how you're looking at it. And that's the message that you're spread that you're spreading. But you're so right. Look, personal life and professional life are totally overlapping. We are the same person in both contexts, but 
then we try to learn different kind of behaviors in uh, each context that are appropriate for the context. But at the end of the day, inside, we are the same human being, you know, going to work. And, and in both situations, we try to be happy. We spend the most of our life at work, most of us. So if we're miserable at work, it's a problem. And, and when I, you know, when I went through that crisis that I mentioned earlier, I tried once again to figure out in a more clear way what was driving, what could drive my happiness. And so I arrived to this conclusion that, by the way, any human scientist share and is aware of is nothing new. But there are three steps that I talk about at the end of the book to reach happiness at personal level. And then I give some examples of how you could do the same for yourself or your team at work as well. So at personal level, the first one is investing in yourself, is essentially defining your identity within society. We start this journey since we are kids. Work is for sure very important for many of us because somehow define us socially in this world. But it doesn't need to be just work. Many people don't work and they can do things to define themselves. But it's very important to understand who you are, what are your strengths, what are your opportunities, how you can get better. But to do that, you need to start from a position of respect for others, appreciation for others, appreciation for people, especially are different from you. You know, we often talk about diversity, understanding, not fearing diversity and understanding how you can interact with people that are different from you. You don't want to copycat the influencers of the world, whoever they are for you. You don't want to fear and reject people that are different from you. You want to embrace everything, use them, all of that as insights and data, and then shape your own Michelangelo sculpture because we are a beautiful sculpture. So that's the first thing. The second one is this love that you give to people close to you. Is your family, is your close friends, is your close community, is selfless love. You give love, but you will get it back because of the nature of these interactions. If you don't get it back, there is something wrong going on with your friends or with your close community. Or, and the same happens at work. You, you, know, you surround yourself with colleagues that you love to be with and that you, that you are kind to and empathetic to and, that, you, know, and you, build, you give love, essentially. You get this back. If you don't tap that, try to fix it. Try to build these kind of relationships. If you are a team leader, try to build it within your team. You know, your team could become the igniter of a different culture within the organization. And even if it's not, try. You know, that's what I've been trying to do all my life. But again, the kind of close love, giving and receiving is the second dimension. And it can happen at work as well. The third dimension, often we get there later in life, for most of us, that happened to me for sure later in life, is when you realize that to be happy, you need something that is much bigger than just you. So it's not just you, it's not just the love for the people close to you. You need a purpose. You need something bigger than you in life. Now, it sounds really selfless, beautiful to say. The reality is that even that is still very egoistic in a positive meaning of the word. Meaning that later in life, you start to think about what is going to happen when you're not going to be here anymore. And so essentially, this something bigger than you is all about becoming immortal through a legacy that you're building. The legacy could be as simple as 
good memories of people saying, well, I remember Will, you know, when he was alive, Mauro, when he was alive, he was so kind to people. He made, you know, so good in his community or it could be, it could be charity, but oh, it worked the same. You know, if you are a leader of an organization, of a team, of any kind, any scale, have a dream, have a purpose, motivate your team to go after the big vision, the big dream. And that, by the way, when I say big, it depends on the scale of your team. It doesn't need to be change the world or invent the iPhone or whatever. It is all, you know, in context. But give them a dream. The amount of motivation and ultimately happiness that you're going to generate for these people is incredible. So these are three steps that then I became really aware of. And talking about habits, once, you know, the, the beauty of decodifying what happened in your life, looking back, trying to figure out what happened and try to put some, you know, literally define in frameworks or in, uh, in truth, in keywords, whatever you want to use, what happened in your life, what are you connecting the dots, as Steve Jobs used to say, help you, first of all, building awareness about what is important in your life and then help you forcing yourself to practice what is important more and more and more. So when you realize that, for instance, to be happy, I need to, you know, define myself. So grow with culture and kindness, as my parents used to tell me. I need to reinforce my connection with people. And it's, it's easier eventually with family. But even not even that is actually not easy. You know, my family is back in Italy. I'm in New York. So one call more a week, uh, calling your friends when you don't see them. So investing in that and then realizing that you need something bigger that eventually, you know, spontaneously you were thinking of something, a dream or something, but transform that dream in a plan, in an action, in something that you invest in, bring others with you. All of these things, once you build awareness about the fact that they're important, you start to practice them. The 24 skills that are enabling all of these kindness, optimism, curiosity, resilience, you know, all these skills. Again, when you are aware that they are important, you start to practice them. You transform them in habits. Before they were intuition, they were something eventually you had inside. But then the step, you know, that changed the game is when you transform something is intuition through awareness in action and you practice it daily. Then you start to grow and you keep growing. Dude, I love it. Right. And that all comes back to our, our theme from the beginning of, you know, always be growing and you have to figure out and just to kind of tie on to that. It's not just growing in any direction, but all these things that you're saying, kind of understanding, you know, what these important things are, both in life in general, like I was saying, like universal principles, but then how those principles apply to you, like what is important to you and being careful not to buy into what you were saying earlier, which is this false prophet. I call it miswanting. Uh, I took this Yale happiness course and they really nailed it. They talked about how we're obsessed with things that make us unhappy, right? That's the culture that we're living in. That's and, you know, similar to kind of what you were saying. And, and we chase this, we think success is, is, is money and monetary, but no, that's it's, it's, I actually call it, that's, that's my whole philosophy is based on, I call it these five cores. So you have your five cores, your rocket, and you're using that as an analogy. And in order to, break Earth's gravitational pull, you need to start building habits in each of these cores, your mindset, your relationships, your career and your finance, your physical health, your emotional health. These are all areas you can't ignore um, any for too long. You don't have to be 100% balanced in all of them, but you do need to make sure that there's that element of, okay, I'm neglecting my physical health here. Uh-oh, I'm neglecting my emotional health. Oh, 
my career. And most of us tend to put career and finance like front and center. And it's like 90%. And like you said earlier, which I loved, which the same thing actually happened to me, but luckily I was prepared for it. People chase and chase and chase this, 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 this illusion that if they can only make enough money, they'll be happy and sit on a beach drinking a pina colada and, and then that's it. Right. But that's not reality. And in fact, I had that illusion early on. Luckily though, I started reading some self-help books and stuff. I did become successful in business. I sold my own company, made enough money that I never had to technically work again. And had I not been preparing for that moment, I would have been so screwed. I would have been one of those, the lottery ruined my life stories, right? Like, cause yeah. I'd already been building my mindset. I'd already been building my relationships, my physical health. I knew what was important to me. And you hit, you also hit it on the head when you said, as we get a little bit older, it tends to be where we start to realize I need to give back. I need to do something bigger than myself. I need to have a purpose. And I never really put it in terms of an age. I teach people that. And I do realize when I, I struggle a lot more to teach the younger people than the older, than, than somebody, because it, I think it's just a natural part of our DNA when you're younger that you, you know, you're just in that chase. But then as you get to a point where you maybe start to have some success, you're like, oh, well, that's not what I thought it was going to be. What's really important. And then you look inside yourself at your core values and you go, well, shoot, like, I want to leave this place better than when I found it. Like that's, that's in our DNA as well. Like we want to make the world better. But like you said, the key is how can I incorporate my strengths and my passions so that I'm enjoying the ride and actually helping human beings each day. Right. And so when you start to kind of put all that together and understand that, and you're building your life, your personal life and your business life around these, as you say, habits to mirror everything and the habits within them, then you start to gain that momentum in life and you start to take off and then you start to grow, but there is no destination. There's no end point. There's no theme, as you said, right? It's, it's, you gotta, you're gonna reach a goal and then you just gotta know you're gonna then set another goal. And in a way that can be depressing, I think, and sad for people to hear because they go, oh, so you're saying there's like, I'm never getting off this merry-go-round? Yes, I am saying that if you wanna be happy, but if you understand that that's how the universe works and that as people, that's what we need to be happy and you can use that for your own personal gain to say, okay, I'm going to set this goal. And when I hit it, I'm going to set the next versus what we were just talking about a second ago, which is really dangerous to say, okay, I'm just going to like build my whole life around the fact that one day maybe I'll hit the lottery or I'll make a zillion dollars and I can just do nothing. That's dangerous. Right. And I was just, just last thing I'll say is uh, last night I was watching the Arnold Schwarzenegger documentary. Have you watched this? Uh, no, yet. No, yet. I saw that. I highly recommend it. Everything that we're talking about right now revolves around his philosophy. And whoever's listening to this podcast, just when you finish this, do yourself a favor, put it in your phone as a reminder, watch it tonight on Netflix, regardless of what you think about Arnold Schwarzenegger as an actor, or, you know, he's done some things that aren't awesome. The way he did what he did, and people don't realize it, but he did three incredible things. He was born in this small Austria town where there was no opportunity. And he saw this picture of this guy playing Hercules. And he's like, I'm going to be that. And he said he had got this vision in his head that he was going to do it. And he just said, there's nothing going to stop me. And he's like, I know that that's going to happen. And he did it. And then 
he reached Mr. Universe and, you know, Mr. Everybody knows him as he started with bodybuilding and all that. And then he did that and he won like six times in a row. And he's like, okay, I've done that. Right. He reached that goal. But instead of just kind of getting fat and sitting on the sidelines, you know, drinking and becoming addicted to substances, like a lot of people do when they get to that, he said, okay, what's my next goal? I'm going to be a movie star. I'm going to be the biggest movie star the world has ever seen. And he, they showed a clip from his first movie. I mean, his acting was absolutely atrocious. I mean, it was just like, you're like, there's no way anybody could have watched that and ever put him in a movie again. It was that bad. But he's like, I'm not going to give up. Uh, he's like, I just tried it. And I realized now I have to put hard work just like I did into building my body. And he understood the, bo the body and the mind and that it's the same process. You got to have discipline and you got to commit. And he committed to acting lessons and he went all in. And then, you know, he got his break in Conan, the Barbarian, which was like, he didn't have a ton of acting in that. But then his real break, and then they did a the documentary on Pumpkin, Pumpkin Iron. Anyways, so he, and then he became the biggest action star in the world, right? And then the third one, then he got tired of that, right? He gets to the point where he goes, I did it. I hit my goal. I'm the biggest star on the planet. That was my second huge goal. Now, now what? Now I'm kind of bored. Like, okay, yeah, another action movie, politics. His wife, Maria Shriver, was a Kennedy. He'd always been interested in it. He's like, that's what I want to do. He's like, I know I've got something to give and I can give back to this world, that's, this, to America that's given me so much. I want to be a politician. And, I, and he went all in and he became governor. I mean, the dude, you want to talk about like what we're talking about in a perfect example of a human being where he, he just started developing these habits and understood what was important and he always treated people like they had interviews with all these people very kindly, like you were saying. And he understood that it's not about scratching and clawing and being an asshole to the top, but being a good person and living by his values. And then when he reaches a goal, he's going to stay hungry. He used to, he kept using the word stay hungry. He said his dad instilled that into him when he was a kid. And he also, there was another one that he said, which was, and this will end it because I know I'm going on uh, a tangent, but he said, uh, his dad told him at a very young age, be useful. And he said, if you're not useful, get out of the way. And he said, that just stuck with him. And it always made him hungry. And it always made him drive because he's like, I don't want to be looked at as somebody that's not useful. So I know. I love, I love, I love the entire story. I'm going to watch the documentary, but yes, that's a, you got to watch it. Yeah. I hope I didn't spoil it for everybody, but pretty amazing. Is what Simon Sinek in his one of, I think is his latest book or one of the latest, uh, the infinite game talk about, it talks about this tension towards something. And when you reach it, you need to use that as a platform to go to the next goal. And it, it talks about this in business and our companies that instead have a goal. And once they, they're there, they try to extract as much financial value out of it. They're not companies are successful in the long term. So once again, this parallel between private life, happiness and even companies and business there are so many things in common because by the end by the way at the end of the day these companies are made by human beings and they serve other human beings in the most of the times and so we forget that often i love it i love it and so we're coming to an end here you know tying this into you know your role at pepsi could you give us some examples of some of the obviously we've now heard your philosophy on you know the importance of, of being kind and these types of things how exactly are you implementing it in the company itself to help people to develop these types of habits and philosophy? Look, 
as we do as designers, the most important thing for me is being always, first of all, to storytell this kind of um, ideas. And to storytell the ideas, you need a story and therefore you need a message and you need the idea at the beginning, right? So uh, now I'm saying this, that's once again, sounds obvious, but the reality is that often in a company, you're there and you rush after your next project or your next promotion or your next task. And many people don't pause and try to figure out exactly what is that is driving their success or is driving the success of a project or ultimately, once again, is making them happy, is making the team happy and is creating the right kind of environment for to enable that kind of success then of projects, brands and products. And, and so uh, the first thing to do is figure out exactly what is important for you, what is the message. And in my case, once again, where the people, people before anything else, calling it human centricity, challenging how companies call this focus on people, consumer centricity or customer centricity and talking about something that's much broader and bigger than that and is really part of the culture of the organization. And then storytell this. How do you storytell that? Well, first of all, early on, I wrote down those skills and I started to share them very informally with our HR team, with, our, with my small team at 3M. I wanted to make sure that everybody was aware that those skills were important to me. Um, then after that, I published articles about this. There is an article from 12 years ago for the Design Management Institute Review, uh, a sort of paper where I talk about the skills. And, 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 and in that case, the idea was to make sure that those kind of skills were public, that people will know about this. I was, I started to talk about them in my speeches. I was talking about design and projects, but they would always end with the skills of these innovators. And so again, uh, later on, then it became a book, but always thinking, how can I make these things part of who I am so that the people surrounding me, starting with my own teams and then people working with me know that to work with me, you need to have a certain kind of behavior. Now, it's easier with your teams because I decide who is in the team. I hire them. Uh, but even in the case, and it's more difficult with people surrounding you because they are free to do whatever they want and behave in the way you want. But again, if you story tell the fact that these kind of skills enable success and you're delivering success and, and results for to your company, people will start to be curious about, you know, those skills and why they're working and how they're working and 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 this is why my storytelling changed for instance in PepsiCo in the past 11 years if i was joining the company and talking about people in love with people and kindness and optimism a lot of people would have rolled their eyes and be like okay whatever so you know i was behaving in this way i was using this as filters to hire my people but I focus also on delivering very tangible business results for the company. I call them proof points. The more proof points you build, the more credibility you build, the more you can start to talk about things that people don't expect. They may roll their eyes, but they're like, wait a second. He consistently talks about these kind of things and he's consistently delivering the results that you know, we really care about. Let's figure out if there is a connection between these two things. You know, it's not just the ranting of the designer, Italian, you know, philosopher, whatever. And so again, 
storytelling, talking about that. And it's not just about making sure that people around you embrace them and get inspired by them. But by doing that, you force yourself to really embrace them all the time. You know, you may talk about things that are important to you, but you, you, you say it all the time, you know, habits, habits, habits. It's possible that, you know, this is human beings and human minds. It's, po it's possible that something is important to us, but we don't do anything against that goal. It's important, you know, maybe I want to be fit. I want to be healthy with my body, but I eat like a pig anyway, and I don't work out, you know, even if I know that that's my goal. Now, if your goal, though, is declare publicly, if you're really loud about this, you're like, okay, I'm going to work out, I'm going to get fit, I'm going to get healthy, then people will look at you and will expect you to do it. If on top of saying that, you're saying, I'm going to do that, and I want everybody in my team to do that, then even more people will look at you and be like, okay, you need to be the example of this. Now, if I'm very public about the fact that we need to be kind, we need empathy, we need resilience, we need courage, we need all these characteristics, I, by definition, need to embody them even when eventually I can, you know, I could diverge or I'm too busy to do certain things or I just forget or... No, I force myself to practice them because I need to be an example. And so storytelling helps even you, not just the people around you, in making sure that you, whatever you talk about, become a habit that you consistently practice every day. Love it, man. What a, what a great way to end. Yeah. And that, that ties back to good old Arnold. He's like discipline. And that's something that is really fallen by the wayside. We, you talked earlier about this society and culture we're in of technology and all this and how it's evolved. This is the great Stan Lee. You know, Stan Lee is Marvel Comics uh, once said, with great power, there must come great responsibility. And we, a lot, the, these companies are growing so fat technology is is exponentially quantum leap you know growing and now ai and and all this stuff is happening and companies that have all the money are grabbing it and they're using it for their bottom line right to monetize our attention to get or i'm not saying all of them but a lot of them and but you can use that for good versus evil and you can you can understand how to develop the discipline that you need and you can use technology and there's all sorts of things now things have shifted to where self-help is becoming pretty cool right i mean tiktok instagram a lot of the huge influencers you know it's it's about wellness and these types of things versus when you and i were younger it was not cool right it would be the only ones that were doing it were those old guys that were like 60 that wrote a book and you know um so that's the good news. It's shifting. There's tons of resources. There's habit trackers you can use. There's, uh, you know, mine that I'm, I'm building and, and all sorts of things. But you've got to figure out a way to get that discipline going to where you're saying, I'm committing to, to changing this in my life. And this is the habit I want to develop. And now I'm going to make sure that I hold myself accountable. And I keep doing it over and over until it becomes part of my DNA, until it becomes automatic. And, and the beauty is that once you do that, it doesn't take too long. You need discipline at the beginning, but then it becomes part of yeah. who you are, right? And it's so spontaneous, it's just easy. So, Yeah, that's, that's the cool thing about habits. They don't care if they're good or bad helping or hurting you. Either way, they're going to compound over time. So you might as well do the, but it does take work because they, they grab on tight, right? No matter what, like the bad ones, they've got their claws in you. And it is going to take some front-loaded work and that discipline we talked about to undo them. But once you do that, once you get past that hump, 
then they're working for instead of against you. So, Moral, you're the man, dude. This was a, a really awesome conversation. I didn't I didn't know I was going to get this much from you, and I didn't know we were going to have this much similarity in the way we saw the world and everything because I'm doing the same thing you are. Uh, you're, you, you're much further ahead of me, but no, you're no. helping people to be happier and spreading that into organizations and companies and creating cultures where that's the norm versus the outlier like it used to be. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the conversation, the insights, and I learned a lot even today from you. Thank you. I, I did as well. Um, and where can we find you? Uh, LinkedIn uh, and Instagram are the social platform where I'm very, very active. And then the book uh, everywhere. Amazon is probably the easy platform where to find it, but in all the bookstores. The human side of innovation, the power of people in love with people. Love it. Thank you, my man. This has been great. And we'll see you all next time. That's it for the Gamify Your Habits podcast with Will Moore. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to visit moremomentum.com to learn how you can gamify your life.